chapter 7, book of Daniel. Make your way there. We started this a couple weeks ago, and uh, hopefully it's all still kind of fresh in your mind because we've had a bit of a, a breakthrough there, but uh, this is just such a fabulous book as we um, look at just this incredible book of prophecy and history, and that's really how the, the book of Daniel is in fact, divide it up because the first part of Daniel, we see this historical providence of God. Chapters 1 to 6 detail all that for us. And then in chapter 7 to 12, we go through this prophetic preview where we really see kind of this, this timeline throughout history, uh, things to come. And so that's really what we're going to be focusing on here tonight, this prophetic preview. But that's kind of the breakdown of the book of Daniel here that we'll be looking at and, and seeing here. And a bit of a summary just uh, of Daniel. So um, chapter 1, we saw that deportation and really that attempt at just indoctrinating those that were coming from Judah and, and Jerusalem, specifically being taken captive into Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were four key Figures there taken away into captivity, but smart and, and uh, wise people. And we see them just being kind of stand-up uh, young men. Chapter 2, we saw this incredible dream of Nebuchadnezzar that, that remember, he asked his, his wise men to interpret for him without telling them what the dream was. De- Nebuchadnezzar's like, I want to test you guys, see how well you're really kind of, you know, receiving this kind of insight. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is and have you just interpret just whatever you think it is. I want you to tell me what the dream actually is. Show me. And, da- and Daniel was able to do that, right? Uh, amazing. Just this gift to God. Well, chapter 3, we saw the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in, and, and that one, the, Lord, the Son of Man, being there with them, Jesus, right, them, right there with them in the fire. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, and then really how he began to just be boastful and all that he had built there in Babylon and the Lord just brought him right down into this point of insanity almost where he's living as a wild beast in the field until he repented and the Lord restored him. Chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast and the conquest of Babylon and how they were taken over by the, the Medo-Persian army. Just as we saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we'll allude to that coming up here. And then chapter 6, Daniel and the lion's den, we know how that worked out. Worked out well for uh, Daniel. Didn't work out well for his accusers, as you remember in Daniel 6. Well, chapter 7 now. In chapter 7, we get into uh, another vision that this time Daniel receives. And remember, the book of Daniel is not going through chronologically, okay? Chapter 5 brings us to the end of Babylon's history in a sense but now we're we're back and forth a little bit chronologically through the book of Daniel. So in chapter 7 Daniel's given this dream and and it's one with similar connotations as to what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt in Daniel chapter 2. And we'll see a lot of the the parallelisms that we'll see in that dream. So go to Daniel chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 2 and here's what we read there. Daniel spoke saying I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth. 
and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this in verse 7, I saw, Daniel says, in the night, visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So, this incredible dream that Daniel has, and he sees, in essence, in this dream, Four things like these four beasts. Now, going back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this is what we looked at last time in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this huge statue that was made up of all these different parts and these different um, materials going from more you know, degrading value as it went from the top down. Started off with gold, but yet became stronger as it went down. And so we see that each of these things represented these different nations, these world empires that were coming on the scene, starting with Babylon, and then uh, the Medo-Persians coming and taking over from Babylon, and then Greece coming and taking over from them, and then eventually Rome taking over from them. Well, in Daniel's dream now, in chapter 7 here, he's given this dream and he sees this thing, first was like a lion, this first beast like a lion. Now the lion represents Babylon, all right? Again, we're going to see this parallelism here, the winged line. That was a favorite image in Babylon. In fact, in, 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 in excavation and stuff around there, they've seen different items found with this mark of a line on it. Babylon was a, um, you know, was this nation, this beast in a sense that came in swift and strong and conquered its enemies, put a lot of fear in the people. But then its wings, Daniel says, the wings were plucked off. That could refer perhaps to the the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. He was proud and boasting when suddenly he was made like an insane man. But then eventually humbled himself. He was given a, a as Daniel records there, a man's heart was given to it. Humbled himself. It could refer to Belshazzar in Daniel 5 and how he again was boasting and eventually he got brought down. Babylon was defeated. The wings plucked off. But then Daniel also sees now another beast, a second, like a what, somebody? A bear. There's the bear, and the bear, again, represents Medo-Persia. And notice that in that description that Daniel gives, that that bear, now, it, it um, was raised up on one side in verse 5. Raised up on one side, that could be a reference to the two parts of this kind of empire, the Medos, uh, Medes, the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians were the stronger of the two, so it's kind of raised up on one side, showing that the the Persian uh, group was more stronger, even more honorable than the Medes. So they are fittingly pictured as a bear, because the Medo-Persian army would come against their enemy in a very slow, kind of crushing manner. They overwhelmed their enemies with size and strength. And then that bear is pictured with three ribs in its mouth, all right? Having a good snack 
with it along the way here. But see, the Medo-Persian army had supplanted three previous empires, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians. So many believe that that's the reference here. But it could also imply that um, it, it could be a specific reference also to the three major conquests the Medes and Persians made under Cyrus and his son Camses, the, the Lydian kingdom in Asia Minor. They took over and then also the Chaldean Empire, Babylon, and then Egypt as well. So it, it could be referencing Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt, or the three previous empires in in Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. Then the third beast, another like a leopard comes along in verse 6. The leopard represented Greece. And again, that had great wings on it, four heads. And, and Greece, uh, I think that's a, a fitting picture because a leopard, you think of an animal that's very, what, fast, right? And that's exactly how Alexander the Great, leading that Greek, uh, Grecian Empire, came in swift, strong, with tremendous speed. The four wings kind of depicts that, just soaring right through, coming on fast. But the beast also had four heads because after Alexander the Great brought world dominance to Greece, he died young in his early 30s. And then there was nobody there to assume his leadership. So the kingdom was divided up into four parts. So this animal is depicted with four heads. Four parts given to four generals, Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And, and that's, again, an incredible thing to see the fulfillment of prophecy like this. Because Daniel's writing this before Greece is even in the picture. Right? Think about that. Think about the accuracy that's being given here. And the depiction of these beasts and how, again, it ties in so accurately and consistently with what actually took place years after Daniel is writing about that. So he's able to see just the character of the upcoming empires that are going to be coming into power. God, you see, has the whole of history and future just in the palm of his hands and he's able to see the beginning to the end. And that should always bring comfort to us to know that that God has everything laid out so perfectly, so wonderfully. Now, Daniel then sees this fourth beast and it says there in verse 7 that it's dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong that fourth beast didn't resemble any particular animals only described as that dreadful terrible strong beast and had 10 horns horns were that symbol of power so that fourth beast comes along and speaks of the roman empire which had come and conquered greece it was the largest most powerful unified and lasting empire of all of these that Roman Empire. Notice the characteristics and, and the correlation between Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and Daniel's dream here because what are some comparisons we see here with this beast in Daniel 7 with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, or, or sorry, of Daniel 2? The legs were made out of what? Iron. And, and that beast had what? Iron teeth. So again, you see this correlation here. Huge iron teeth. And then ten toes were mentioned in chapter 2. And here we see ten horns on this beast. And Daniel sees this beast devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet, it says. Once again, the correlation in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, symbolized by the feet that were pictured there. And that certainly adequately describes Rome. For they came and overpowered their, their enemies, and these came and, and pummeled them into submission. 
It's exactly how Rome operated. So Daniel there in verse 8, it says that he's, he's considering the horns now. He's intrigued by the horns on this beast. He's seen a beast that he can't even describe. There's no, there's no, you know, description or no beast that has a comparison to what he's seeing here in this identification of Rome. He doesn't know how to describe it, but he's intrigued by these ten horns that are on this beast. And it certainly brings some interesting and uh, and really relevant insight for us today because he sees another horn, a little horn, coming up among them. And that would seem to speak of one who began to have oversight and leadership over that fourth beast or kingdom. Now, again, what's very interesting, and we mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago here when we started Daniel, is that the Roman Empire was never fully overthrown. In other words, there was never another world empire that came and succeeded the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire just kind of fizzled out, never to have another world empire to take its place in a sense. It just kind of fizzled out. Nobody defeated the Roman Empire. Kind of imploded itself. And and so as we look at these ten horns, we see they speak of ten kings who are going to arise out of this kingdom. Now, now look at verse 24. You might be going, how, how are you getting that, Brent? Where are you getting that it's 10 kings? Well, verse 24, in case you thought, man, that guy's really smart. It's just, it's right there in the word. I gotta be honest with you. It just explains right there. Verse 24, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from that kingdom. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So that's what we see happening here. And many see both Biblically and prophetically, that there will be that revived Roman Empire in the last days. And it's going to be comprised of a confederacy, it would seem, uh, of, of different nations. And ten nations specifically, mentioned by the ten toes in the statue, ten horns on this beast, this Roman Empire that never actually was defeated, but it's going to have a, a revival in the last days, where it's going to be this revived Roman Empire made up of a ten-nation confederacy, And there's going to be one that's really going to be kind of leading it all. That one horn that comes up. And it says, it's speaking pompous words. All right? Speaking pompous words or speaking great things. There's going to be one that's going to come on the scene that's going to really draw the attention of all the people that are are going to cause other nations to say, we want to follow that guy. He's speaking great things. And that is speaking of the Antichrist that's going to come on the scene. That's going to be leading this ten nation confederacy, this revived Roman Empire. And that Antichrist is being depicted here by that little horn that rises to prominence and dominance over the other nations making up that revived Roman Empire. And notice this little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man. And like I said, mouth that was speaking pompous words. In other words, the Antichrist is going to be a real blabbermouth, just like a good politician. All right, we'll see more of that nature as we continue on so uh, i believe the antichrist oftentimes and, and we'll talk a bit more about this but oftentimes we think the antichrist is being this kind of you know demonic figure right that's just opposing christ or opposing which he will do but he's going to come on the scene very charismatically people are going to love this person People are going to be drawn to this guy. He's going to be the one that's, that's promising a lot of great things that people are going to say, that's exactly the person we're looking for to lead us into this new era. Perhaps a new world order. And he's going to be drawing, he's going to be very charismatic, very, very likable. 
in a sense. People are going to be drawn to him. He's not going to come on the scene as some demonic figure making people run. He's going to be drawing people to him. Now, he will show his true colors later on, and I'm getting ahead of myself. He'll show his true colors. We'll get to that coming up here, but understand the nature, the character of the Antichrist when he comes on to the scene. So we see four kingdoms at work from Daniel's day that will have a significant, they'll have significance right up to even our day. But after the revived Roman Empire, a continuation of the fourth beast, we're going to see a fifth kingdom that's going to emerge. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, those great beasts, which are four, are four kings. The New King James Version um, gives a textual note that talks about it being representing kingdoms, four kingdoms. So we can look at them as kings individually, but more so as entire kingdoms. Like at verse 18 of chapter 7. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So that's that fifth kingdom that's going to emerge that I'm talking about. That's going to be given over to the saints. All those that have been saved. Understand that we're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ. And the kingdom is given to them from the Most High. In other words, people do not overthrow human kingdoms and give it to God. It's the other way around. There, there's a, you know, kind of a push in some Christian circles today that feel we need to usher in the kingdom of God. We got to be those that are, are, are bringing in all this change into the world. Now, don't get me wrong. We should be living in a, in a way where we're making an impact in the world for the better. We want to, we want to see it happen, but understand we're not expecting the world to get better and for the Lord just to kind of come onto the scene and say, Oh, thank you. You got all ready for me. Here I go. I just got to come and sit down on my throne. There are some that believe that in, in Christianity that we're going to usher in the kingdom. And so we've got to take charge. We've got we to occupy all these different positions of government and things like that. And, and we've got to, you know, really push forward the social gospel and make things better, right? That's the way that a lot of people think. But understand that that's not the way it's going to go down. We don't give up and say, oh, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket and we just sit back and wait. No, we don't, we don't do that. We want to be light in this world. We want to make an impact. We want to see people come to know Jesus. So we've got to live in this world and occupy in a way that we want to be a, a witness in the world. But understand that Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to usher in his reign and his rule and establish his kingdom. And then we're going to be a part of that. And he's going to give that over, it says, to the saints now. What a, a great day that's going to be. Well, chapter 7, uh, verse 19 and 22, Daniel was particularly troubled. Really over that fourth beast, he talks about that uh, some more. And uh, again, just kind of concerned about that little horn that, that's popping up there. Verse 23, here's what we read. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. So the fourth kingdom, this Roman Empire was indeed different than all the rest That it was in that it was so much more widespread and domineering than these other kingdoms were. 
as mentioned, has never been taken over by another nation that's succeeded it or superseded it. And that Roman Empire is going to be revived in a later day, which will seem to be led by the little horn. That was different from the first ones. Verse 20 said that, that his appearance was greater than his fellows. That's, again, speaking of the Antichrist. That's going to emerge and just kind of be seen as this one that everybody's been hoping for, waiting for, to bring about the change that the world thinks is needed. Now, the time period that the Antichrist is coming on the scene is, is known as the Tribulation. The seven-year period that God is enacting his judgment against a world that has rejected Jesus. All right? The church is going to be raptured up to heaven before the tribulation, before that seven-year period takes place where God is once again going to be working in and directly through the people of Israel once again. That's really that, that prophetic you know, time clock revolves around the nation uh, of Israel. So it's the nation of Israel that's being spoken of really as the saints in that passage. That period is going to begin with a peace treaty where the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, be instrumental in securing and bringing about sort of this, you know, pseudo peace among Israel and, and the surrounding nations. It's what everybody's kind of looking for and, and wanting to some degree. And, and again, notice for a time and times and half a time. So the tribulation period now, lasting seven years, is going to be broken up in the middle of it by an abominable act of the Antichrist. That's talked about here where he's going to be, in verse 25, persecuting the saints of the Most High, persecuting the nation of Israel. All right? And really, all those that have come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation. So it appears that it's at that time, halfway through the tribulation, that the Antichrist really shows his true colors, identifies that he's not for Israel. He's not, not for, you know, those that are following God. He shows his animosity towards God and his people. Revelation chapter 13, if you're taking notes, Revelation 13, verses 4 to 8, kind of outline more of that and really shows what's going to be taking place um, during that tribulation. But moving into chapter 8 now. Now, interestingly, as we get into chapter 8, you'll recall that from, if you're here in our last study, uh, a couple weeks ago in Daniel here, the first part, you'll recall that from Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7 here, it's written in the Aramaic language. Very unique for the Old Testament, all right? Because we're primarily dealing with this Gentile history. Alright, that's very unique in Daniel's book here. There's a couple other small passages in the Bible that are written in Aramaic, but Daniel, this whole section written in Aramaic because it's identifying and outlawing this whole history uh, of Gentile history. So it's written in this Aramaic language, not in the, not in the Hebrew languages, you know, majority of the Old Testament was written in. So though we're still looking at some Gentile historical significance, um, from chapter 8 on, this is now this turning point where it's written in, in the Hebrew language once again here. So, Daniel receives another vision in this chapter. Chapter 8, look at verse 3. Another vision Daniel receives. Verse 3 says this, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that the animal could withstand him. 
so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Verse 6. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So, Another very obscure dream. A ram and a goat get into a bit of an MMA match here, all right? A little bit of a confrontation goes on. The ram now, uh, again, was overtaken by this, by this goat, all right? Now, this ram was looking and, and pushing westward, it said, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand it, it said. Everything that got in its way, it was taken over. The ram is picturing that Medo-Persian empire. Uh, I know that, again, from my vast research and studies, and because verse 20 tells us it's the Medo-Persian army. All right, okay. I'm not going to be able to pull anything over on you guys here. So, look at verse 20. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, because the dream is being... um, is being um, interpreted for Daniel there. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media... And Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So that's what's going on right here. This is this dream that Daniel sees. And that's why that ram had two horns, because it's made up of these two Medes and, and Persia. Again, the, the Persian Persians grew to be bigger and eventually took over the, the Medes, basically. So that army came from the east, powered through the lands to the west, north, and south. Again, that could be... What's being referenced by that bear in chapter 7 with the three ribs in his mouth? Taking over all the different regions around there, you see. And then Daniel, suddenly in verse 5, he sees that male goat coming out of the west came with such speed. Remember what Greece was being pictured as in Daniel 7? The what? The leopard. The fastest of the animals. So here again, this goat. Now, goats aren't typically... Well, I guess they, they could be all right fast, right, Dan? Help me on here. They could, you don't want to get in the path of a goat. It's charging at you. No, they can be fast. But Greece pictured by the leopard. Now this goat is exceedingly fast. And it comes as though it says without touching the ground. That's how Daniel refers to it in chapter, in verse 5, right? And male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. In other words, it's just flying at like warp speed right at that ram to take it out. And that's how that Grecian army came in. Swift. Fast, just devouring, you see. And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. What was that horn? The man responsible for leading Greece in its worldly conquest, Alexander the Great, right? Y'all read about that in your, in your history books. Those of you who took history in school, y'all hear about that. And as he approached the then world power of Persia, they just butted heads. But eventually, it's the ram that was taken out. And the goat, picturing Greece, is left standing. Defeated the Persians, they became the world power. It's amazing what you 
see right here in God's word, just all laying out for us history before it even happens, right? I mean, that's what prophecy is, is is pre-written history. So it's very cool, very awesome to see how this all goes down there. And it may, it, it just, wow, so cool. So it says that the male goat in verse eight grew very great. Alexander the Great had defeated the then known world with astounding speed. And again, only in his late 20s when all that was happening, right? I mean, this guy's very successful, right? It's told that he had asked where the next conquest should be and he's told that there was no more land to take over. And so Alexander became very depressed and he resorted to to drinking because he's like, what else am I going to do right now? It's like, I've done it all. He's in his late 20s, he's like, I've done it all. What am I going to do now? So he resorts to drinking and, and, and one night at a party, he became very drunk. Complications arose over his drinking and some believe he picked up some disease related to this all. However, in the midst of his vast projects, he was seized with a, a fever after a night-long drinking bout and he died in Babylon in the year 323 BC at the age of 32. See, as Daniel records his dream, when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And so with Alexander dying so young, he never had a chance to, to really place someone as his successor. So rather, the, the, the empire now, like I had alluded to earlier with the four heads of the leopard, the empire now is divided up into four different sections under four leading generals. And they are, as we had mentioned, Cassander, um, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And you see the different regions that they were all over now. Cassander over Macedonian Greece, uh, Lysimachus over Thrace and parts of Asia Minor, Ptolemy over Egypt and parts of Asia Minor, Seleucus over Syria, Israel, and Mesopotamia. So again now, in chapter 8 verse 9, we're introduced to this little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south. Alright? Now, this is different than the little horn in chapter 7 verse 8 which was speaking of the Antichrist. This is not speaking of the Antichrist. This emerges out of the Grecian Empire, not out of the revived Roman Empire. It's coming out of Greece. So this little horn is speaking of a notorious leader that arises named Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're going to see there will be a lot of similarities and connections with the Antichrist, but distinct and different from the Antichrist. Antiochus IV Epiphanes came from the Seleucid dynasty. He was their eighth ruler. He was very zealous in spreading Hellenistic culture. And so he wanted to spread their law, their religion. And in so doing, he became very violent toward the Jews in Judah because he sees that they had really their succinct, very distinct identity and culture, their own law, religion. And so as Antiochus for Epiphanes is trying to spread this Hellenistic Grecian culture. They're not standing for it. And so he became very irate towards the Jews. And we see in this verse that he grew toward the glorious land. Do you, do you see that there? In, at the end of verse 9. Toward the east and toward the glorious land. That's speaking of Israel and the control that they arrested away from the, the Ptolemies. And so Antiochus for became known as one of the cruelest tyrants of all time. All right? Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a ruler filled with great pride, sought to exalt himself. The name Epiphanes actually means 
illustrious one or manifested one. Antiochus gave himself the name Theos Epiphanes, meaning God manifested. That a little bit on the egotistical side, wouldn't you say? That's kind of how he identified himself, how he wanted to be known. God manifested right here before you. Here I am. Theos Epiphanes. But the Jews gave him the name Antiochus Epimanus, meaning madman. That's what they called him. Antiochus Epimanus, madman. Now, to quote from Skip Heidzig, he says this, In 168 BC, Antiochus IV ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed part of the second temple, which hadn't even been built yet in Daniel's time. He put up a statue of Zeus in another part and outlawed the practice of Judaism, sacrificing a pig on the altar sacrifice in the main courtyard. And that became known as the abomination of desolation. We'll read about that in Daniel 11. And in nine, chapter 9, verse 27, something that Jesus referred to when he later described the similar actions of the Antichrist in the end times that he refers to in Matthew 24, verse 15. So all the horns of human kingdoms, powers, ancient, present, and future can ultimately do very little in the face of the one true power in the universe, the God who set them in place, predicted their demise, and calls them to a reckoning. And so... As Daniel records in that dream that he, he cast down some of the host, some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. That's a difficult passage to interpret right there. All right? Where this Antiochus Epiphanes had, had done these things, casting down these, the, these stars and, and, um, and, and whatnot there. The, the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. It could be implying that his pride and in his exaltation, self-exaltation, that he went up even against God and his angels making himself to be God himself. It could be that his attack against God and his people was demonic in nature and angels and demons in the spiritual realm were involved. But we also have in Daniel 12, 3, a great verse that mentions the saints of God being as stars. So no doubt, Antiochus for opposed the saints of God vehemently and many of the parish could be a reference to that. That he trampled them, these stars, these, these saints of God trampled them to, to the ground. And under his reign, there were some 100,000 Jews that were brought to a violent death at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's pretty incredible. Now, in chapter 9, Daniel is praying. He's interceding. Daniel 9, verse 1, talks about that. And he realizes there that 70 years has been designated for the captivity because Jeremiah had recorded it, had written it down. So Daniel's starting to see that it appears like we're kind of coming towards the end of our captivity now. He's starting to see that time is coming to an end. But what's going to come of Israel now? What about these other empires or kingdoms that he's received prophecy towards? What about them? Is Israel just going to get, you know, defeated again? What's going to happen to us? So there's these questions that are looming in Daniel's mind. And as Daniel is praying and interceding towards the Lord... Gabriel the angel shows up and he begins to lay out for Daniel another significant 70. As he sees seven years appointed for them to be in captivity, now he's referred to another important 70. And this year in chapter 9 of Daniel is really the pinnacle of prophecy. So we're going to look at this a little bit. We're going to jump down because... Uh, chapter 9 goes through a lot of stuff, but when we get to verse 23, this is where this great prophecy really takes place. So look at verse 23. It says this. At the beginning of your supplications 
the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now that word determined in Hebrew is is indicating something that's set aside for a purpose. So 70 weeks are determined. 70 weeks have been appointed, set aside for a determined purpose. And in God's time, divine timetable, there's that group of 70 weeks that's been set aside to accomplish His purposes. Now, are we talking about 70 literal weeks? Is that the, the timing here? Now, weeks is a Jewish idiom used to describe a group of sevens. They would describe a week of years to refer to the time leading up to the Sabbath year or Sabbath rest for the land. A week of years would be seven years. It's quite universally agreed that this is referring to a group of 70 seven-year periods. So, 70 groups of seven-year periods would then equal 490 years. And it says this period is determined for your people and for your holy city. So again... Daniel, he's living in, in Babylon, but he's a Jew through and through. So this prophecy is given to him and for his people and for his city, which is not speaking of Babylon, but speaking of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. This is what this prophecy is centering around. And in this period of time, there would be some very significant events that would transpire. We see there in, in verses 24, verse 24 that we read there, we see that it's to finish the transgression. It, it would mean then, um, let me see that. Yeah, to finish the transgression, that would mean there'd be no more rebellion after this transgression stepping over God's law. That's not going to happen until the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. When he establishes his, his rule of righteousness, his reign of righteousness. So this period of years is going to bring us to that time, understand that the time of the millennial and Christ's reign on the earth to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. See, we're all sinners, right? Through one man's sin because of Adam. Sin has been brought into the world. But also through one man, there will be an end of sins. It's through Jesus Christ who died on a cross and dealt with sin and the penalty of sin by taking that judgment of God upon himself. We're forgiven and there will be a day where sin will be no more. Aren't you looking forward to that? Man, I can't wait for that. And it says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. As Jesus gave himself on the cross to reconcile us unto God. He, he, he made reconciliation for that sin. And he brought us into a right relationship with God through that act and through that sacrifice. And it's to bring in everlasting righteousness. See, this is going to be the very characteristic of Christ's reign here on earth. There's just, there's not going to be any more injustice. Nobody's going to be able to do anything wrong because there will be that rule of righteousness. All is going to be made right during that reign of Christ here on earth. And it says there in verse 24 also to seal up vision and prophecy. See, all that God has said, he will do and it will all have taken place and 
been fulfilled. There's no longer any need for vision and prophecy at that time. Following those 490 years. And lastly, to anoint the most holy. To anoint the most holy. Some render this as meaning the holy place. That could speak of the temple that will be rededicated in the last days. Or it could be referring to Jesus Christ himself. Who will take the throne and physically rule as Lord and King of this earth. So basically these six statements are are the answer to Daniel's prayer that he's been praying at the beginning of chapter 9 and interceding and seeking the Lord. And now here's just kind of that answer and fulfillment and, and again that prophecy given of what's going to come. Now that 70-week period is broken up into 69 weeks and a later 7-week period. So follow along here. Let's break this down a little bit. Verse 25 says this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and and 62 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, we know the starting point of the 69 weeks. It's from the command, it says, to restore and build Jerusalem. And it leads us now to to Messiah the Prince. That's what it says there in verse 25. So that period of time where we've got that 69 weeks, we've got it said there, follow along with me, verse 25, there shall be seven weeks, so seven uh, periods of seven years, 49 years, and then another 62 weeks, totaling um, 483 years or 173,000 880 days using the Babylonian calendar of 360 day years. So we're given some very precise dating here in Daniel 9. That's why this is like the pinnacle of prophecy. All right. From the time the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, there'll be 483 years. Now, Dr. Robert Anderson wrote in his book, The Coming Prince, he's laid out just some very, very interesting events and the calculated dates that has happened. And we can see probably one of the most wonderful fulfillments of scripture here because we know from nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 6 that a decree to rebuild jerusalem was given by king artaxerxes and it was given in the month of nisan in the 20th year of king artaxerxes and that's believed to be specifically march 14th 445 bc so let me put up a little timeline here now and uh let's let's get some dates up here for you guys to see all right so that starting point, can you, you can't see that too well, can you? Is that line cut off? You can see that line on the end there? Okay. So Artaxerxes gives that decree March 14th, 445 BC. Now, other decrees were issued to send Jews back from captivity back to Jerusalem. But again, um, they were sent to do different things. Um, but this one in Nehemiah was specifically to rebuild the city and its walls. And we see that mentioned in our text. So until Jerusalem was rebuilt, we got this first seven week period as verse 25 says in Daniel chapter 9. So we see that Jerusalem is rebuilt after those, you know, 49 years. All right. And then from that command until the Messiah, it says it's going to be 483 years or 173,880 days. A very interesting event took place as you lead up to that point now from march 14th 445 bc the starting point of this prophecy because if you add up all those days now it brings us to a very important point in in history again 
adding up all those years, 483 years, 173,880 days, brings us to the triumphal entry of Jesus. April 6, 32 AD. All right? God's word fulfilled exactly to the day. Those 69 weeks encompassing that decree to go forth to when Jesus comes in. Now, that's interesting because it says until Messiah the Prince. Now, remember all through Jesus' ministry, all the things that Jesus was doing, remember how often he would say, go and tell nobody. Keep this between you and me. Why? Because Jesus was operating on a divine timetable as we've been studying John Sunday mornings. Haven't we been seeing that very clearly that everything is operating on this divine timetable? We saw just this last Sunday in John 8.20 that these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. And so now you begin to see that God right from Daniel 9 has laid out to the day, this moment when the Messiah would come. And very interesting, Jesus would go on to say in Luke 19, verse 42, when he said to the people of Israel after his triumphal entry, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It's almost as if Jesus is holding the people of Israel, the Jewish people, accountable for not knowing the day when he'd come riding in Jerusalem because it was all laid out for them in Daniel chapter 9. To the very day, 173,880 days specifically from that decree going forth, they could map it all out and see this has got to be the day that the Messiah is coming because Jesus, God has already laid that out for us in Daniel chapter 9. They should have been waiting, expecting, and Jesus says, if only you had known in this your day that the Messiah would be coming. But they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And as a result, judgment will be coming upon them silently. Notice what we see next, verse 26 of Daniel 9. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. See, when Jesus came riding in Jerusalem, the stage was set for him to go to the cross. A few days later, he'd be crucified, or as Daniel 9 says, he'd be cut off. That word literally means to suffer the death penalty. That word there in Daniel 9, verse 26, to be cut off, Suffer the death penalty. That's exactly what Jesus did. But notice, as Daniel records, it it wasn't for himself. Jesus didn't do that because he needed to do it for himself. He did it because he loved the world. He did it as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. For you and for me. And after the rejection of Jesus, Jerusalem and the Jewish people will once again be sacked and dispersed. They continue to face war and persecutions which won't stop until Jesus comes again. That's what's recorded in verse 25 that they continue to go through desolations and and wars because they rejected Jesus. And soon after that, Romans would come in again and wipe them out. But notice we've only covered six to nine weeks. There's one more group of seven years. That hasn't happened yet. Remember, this all centers around the nation of Israel. See, right now, we're living in this church age. 
church age, where Israel has been put aside to some degree. This age of grace where the gospel is going out, people are being drawn in. But understand, when the church is taken away at the rapture, this 70-week period, this prophecy of seven weeks, is going to again begin ticking. Because it's during that tribulation period when the church is raptured up that God will again begin to set his focus on Israel and begin to draw Israel to him. And that tribulation period is going to be what's needed to do that. So when does that period begin? We'll read on, look at verse 27. It all lays it out for us so neatly here. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week... He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So I believe the tribulation period begins with the Antichrist and this peace tree that's going to be ushered in. That's what's being spoken of there in verse 27. This prince of the people that come, as verse 26 records. This Antichrist is going to come onto the scene And he's going to bring about a covenant or, as is more accurately rendered, a treaty, a peace treaty. And he establishes that with Israel and their enemies. See, the world is just waiting for someone to come on the scene and lead them in this, like we've been alluding to earlier, this this new era. Because the world is in chaos and many are looking for globalization and unity. We've already talked about this little horn of the last empire, that revived Roman empire that's going to emerge And I believe that's who we're dealing with here in this verse 27 of Daniel 9. This little horn, speaking pompous words, this Antichrist who's going to emerge very charismatically, is going to draw people in. Even even the Jews are going to flock to him and believe him and go, this is our Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Because I believe along with that, that peace treaty, the, the key to that treaty is going to be that he's going to allow Israel to rebuild their temple. That's exactly what Israel is waiting for. Michael and I were just talking about this before the service where everything's ready right now for the temple. They've got, they got all the furnishings ready. They just need the green light to begin construction. There's a little problem though. On the temple mount, you've got the Dome of the Rock. And there's, <laughs> you try to build a temple there, you're going you're gonna to incite World War III right there. But the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to maneuver things. And there's, I've been up there. There's enough room to build a temple beside the Dome of the Rock. In fact, there on the Temple Mount, you'll see what's this gazebo that's called the Dome of the Spirits, where many believe that's right over top of where the Holy of Holies sat. Believing to be that that's the rightful place of the temple. Outside of the Dome of the Rock. And it's interesting where John in Revelation is told to measure and he's told to leave out the court of the Gentiles, which would be leaving out that area where the Dome of the Rock is so that the temple could be rebuilt. So that's what the Antichrist is going to do. And, and he talked to Jews today. When I go to Israel, I ask them, what are you waiting for? How are you, or, or how are you going to recognize the Messiah? And they say, he's going to lead us in the rebuilding of the temple. That's, that's going to be the the thing that's going to cause them to believe that this is their Messiah. 
the person that comes on the scene and leads in the rebuilding temple. That's all getting laid out for us so clearly here. He's going to confirm that covenant with many for, for one week. And so that period is that last seven years, that 70th week that has yet to happen. Because it's all, again, Israel is that prophetic kind of time clock, that, that, that piece, that prophecy is centering around. But they're set aside right now. Blindness has come in part, Paul says in Romans. But there will come a time when the church is taken out of the way and God will begin to deal with Israel again directly. Now, that after that seven years, brings us right to that second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. When all the nations being led by the Antichrist are coming to seek out and destroy Israel and all of the followers of, of God. And that's when Jesus will come back, battle of Armageddon, and just bring an end to all those in rebellion against God. And so that's the, the timeline that we see here in Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel 9, a fascinating section of scripture. And uh, powerful to see how that's all being laid out here for us. Now this prophecy reminds us of a few things. First of all, God is very precise with his timing and he carries out his word very accurately. Secondly, God is not done with the nation of Israel yet. And those that say, no, Israel's forfeited. All their promises been passed over the church. Not so. Daniel 9 here would tell us otherwise. Thirdly, all of history really centers around the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Because that event here even is really the dividing point in this. Basing time now on a before the cross and after the cross. And even here in Daniel 9, that's the, the turning point, the centering point, the dividing point in all that. Now, in the final three chapters of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12, we're given another vision by Daniel, Daniel which really covers a lot of the same things that we've already discussed only he goes in a lot more detail regarding some of the events that are transpiring in the, in the Grecian Empire and the different you know, um, kingdoms or the different um, sections of that kingdom and the people involved there. So he goes in a lot more detail about those things. We're not going to get into all that as we're seeking just to kind of soar through Scripture. We're not going to get involved in that. But if you're interested in that, as you're reading through it perhaps and you're wondering what's going on, just go to our website and uh, we went into that a lot more detail in our study through the book of Daniel uh, a few years ago. So listen to those messages on there to uh, get some insight into what's going on in those chapters. But again, it primarily de- details the defeat of the Persians by the Greeks. And then the division that arose in the Greek Empire when it was divided into those four kingdoms. But let's go over to chapter 12. Chapter 12. We'll wrap this up here. Verse 1 says this. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, again, this is going to be a very difficult time, especially for Israel, because the Antichrist, who is possessed by Satan himself, I believe partway through the, the tribulation, is going to focus that fury against Israel. Again, there's going to be that abomination desolation where the temple will be built and then partway through that tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to, I believe, go into the temple and seek to be worshipped as God. And it's going to be there that, that all of the Jews recognize who this person is, who they're dealing with. And, and this is where the Antichrist really turns on them. Revelation 12, uh, verses 13 and 17 gives us that scenario. See, it's always been Satan's agenda to destroy Israel. Believing that if he can, well, then he can thwart the plans and the purposes of God in bringing a Messiah through the people of Israel. So it's always Satan's agenda. Take out the people of Israel, God's chosen nation for delivering the the Messiah through, and I can thwart God's plans. But even if people perish during this time, if they die in faith in God's promises, we see here in Daniel 12 that there's that promise of the resurrection. Now, there was a common belief among Jews at this point that there would be a general resurrection, right? Remember when Martha came to Jesus distraught over the death of her brother Lazarus? Jesus says, don't worry, Martha, he'll rise again. She goes, oh, I know he'll rise again at the last days. And Jesus has to reassure, no, listen, I'm the resurrection of life. See, up until that point, they didn't have a full grasp that there wouldn't just be a general resurrection, there'd be two resurrections. One to everlasting life, and then one to shame and everlasting contempt, as it says there in verse 2. But those who are wise, it says, those who choose Jesus, they're going to shine bright forever and ever. And those that pass on this good news, as Daniel says, turning others to righteousness, They're going to be like the stars twinkling for eternity. Look at verse 4 here. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 13, in a similar fashion, says, But you, Daniel, go your way to the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. See, Daniel was told, just seal it up, shut up the word, seal the book. It's, it's not for you to worry about right now. He didn't need to worry about these things at that time. The angel here speaking to Daniel basically says to Daniel, this is not for you to see, it'll be for a future time. In fact, you're going to die, but you too one day, you're going to be resurrected to your blessed inheritance. So go get some rest because the best is yet to come. That's essentially what Daniel is being told here. Now, when it talks there in verse 4 about knowledge shall increase in the end days, you know, I wonder, when is that going to happen for me? I can, I can receive that. I, I would like that myself. I would like some knowledge to increase. But we oftentimes think of that. We think knowledge shall increase, and we look at that in a technological manner. And, and, and no doubt we've seen that happening, and we go, oh, this has got to be what this is speaking about, because, because knowledge has increased. I mean, you just have to, you know, Google whatever you want. Any question you got, Google it. And you got the answer right there before you at your fingertips. 
where we're increasing in this knowledge and understanding. But you see, in the context of what's taking place here, the idea seems to center on the knowledge of prophecy and these things that are being recorded by Daniel and the knowledge of these things beginning to take place or when these things begin to take place. And my observance has been that that many today have had a, a great fascination with prophecy within the church, at least in, in, in many circles. Some circles not so much, but in a lot of you know circles of Christianity, there's been a, a real fascination towards prophecy as we begin to see what's going on in the world, as you begin to look at the news through the lens of Scripture. But I've also found, and it's been my observance, that along with that increase of knowledge and prophecy, that among many, they grow in fear. They grow in worry. As though they see the world getting darker and darker and, and, and less hopeful and that chaos is coming. Oh my goodness. It's just so scary out there nowadays. Because they read what's, what's coming, what's happening, and, and then they're, their outlook is just, oh boy, we're just, we're just in for a great tragedy and chaos and, and everything is just doomed. And, and they just begin to get filled with fear. But can I just say that that's not the view that we as Christians should be taking. Because we should be looking up. When we see these things going on around us, when we see the word of God unfolding before us, it should cause us to look up and realize that our redemption is drawing near. That Jesus is coming soon. Have the right attitude here, people. But then don't just look up. Look around and see that there are people that need to hear the good news. Because that's what, what Daniel is saying here in, in Daniel chapter 12. That, that we should be those that are, are shining like stars. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You see, that's the role that we should be taking when we see these things unfolding and knowledge increasing towards prophecy and what's taking place and the reality of what we're dealing with. It should cause us all the more to say, man, I'm not just looking up because my redemption draws near. I want to be looking around to say, how can I be sharing with others? The hope that they can have in Jesus. The reality that Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to be with him? Don't you want to be in heaven? And we should be passing that on to others. And here's the great thing. Is that when we're wise and we're shining bright, turning men into righteousness, that that begins to have eternal rewards for us. Because it says we're going to be like the stars shining forever and ever. Don't. Don't hide away and, and count down the days in fear. Rather, in faith, get out and be a light, proclaiming the one who is coming soon. We have hope, my friends, and we should be excited when we see the things that are going on. Don't despair. Don't get caught up in the trouble going on around you. Get caught up in the one that's holding it all together, the one that's coming soon, and get excited for his arrival and pass it on to other people. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's exciting stuff. I hope you're excited tonight. Well, let me pray, and then we can open up for discussion here. Well, Lord, we come before you here tonight, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. And and, and just as we go through these chapters here, just to see the accuracy of your word. Because you're the one that 
knows the beginning to the end and everything in between. And you just, you keep reminding us, Lord, that you've got it all under control. So, Lord, may we just trust you when we feel like we're experiencing things that are out of control, more so out of our control. Let us rest in you. Let us not fear or worry. Even when we see the events unfolding around us, Lord, may it not cause us to fear, but rather to grow in faith. And then in the reality that Jesus, it just reveals that you're coming soon. That last great kingdom is soon to be established. And may we just be excited about that. And encourage us, Lord, embolden us by your spirit to get out in this world and to pass on the good news, to pass on the hope that we can have, to live excited lives as believers in you, Jesus, and to be impacting the world around us. So lead us in those things, and we ask you to help us in that now, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.